I want you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs 14. We are, as you know, in the midst of a verse-by-verse study of the book of Proverbs. And as we continue to study through the book of Proverbs, I'm continually reminded about the oft-repeated phrase which can actually, I believe, serve as an excellent way to sum up the whole of biblical wisdom literature. You know it, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's that phrase, the fear of the Lord. As I've taught you before, the fear of the Lord can be understood as a holy reverence for God and a healthy dread of Him. And if you were to look in Proverbs 15, for example, verse 16, there is yet another reference to the fear of the Lord. It says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Do you realize how many heartaches and disasters could be avoided in this life if we were to heed that one proverb alone and about what it says about pursuing material and financial riches? Even in chapter 15, verse 33, this concept of the fear of the Lord is repeated yet again. It says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. The very basis of our instruction for wisdom in today's foolish world is our fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is mentioned 19 times alone in the book of Proverbs. It's a real key, I think, in knowing how to live wisely in a world of great foolishness. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said this, Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. I like that. To know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. It's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's how to use it. How to activate it. How to understand it. How to apply knowledge as a wise person in a foolish world. And that's why I've entitled these next series of messages beginning tonight from Proverbs chapter 14 verses 33 all the way through chapter 15, all the way through the chapter up to verse 33 that ends this great chapter. Oh, how we all need God's wisdom in a world of utter foolishness. This wisdom in a world of foolishness can be seen in the first part of the section in Scripture that occupies us by dividing up Proverbs chapter 14, verses 33, on into chapter 15, verse 33, into constituent parts. Remember that when these Proverbs were first cataloged and placed within the canon of Scripture, there were no chapter and verse divisions. And so it's a bit arbitrary at times uh, to piece together exactly how these units of thought really fit. 
And it seems to me that verses 33 through verse 35 of chapter 14 really fits better with chapter 15. And so that's why I stopped last time with verse 32 of chapter 14 because I believe that that's really where the chapter division ought to occur. And so I want to pick up tonight with chapter 14, verse 33, and take the first section, which I believe goes through chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. That makes up that first unit of our study that will take up our time tonight. And then, Proverbs 15, just to give you a sense of what will come next, I believe continues from verse 5 to verse 19, making up a second unit of study that will occupy us next time. And then, to round out the chapter, Proverbs 15, verses 20 to 29, will make up the next unit of thought. And then verses 30 to 33, of course, finishes up the chapter's last little subsection. And perhaps even connecting us or linking us with chapter 16. Now, as I said, I'm attempting tonight to cover Proverbs 14, verse 33, through chapter 15, verse 4. And Lord willing, in the next couple of messages, maybe two or three of them, four probably maximum out of this section that will occupy us in this great chapter and a little bit more. I want to talk tonight one outline point, godly wisdom for foolish living and talking. Godly wisdom for foolish living and talking. Follow me as I read in the New American Standard Bible, Proverbs 14, beginning in verse 33, finishing with chapter 15, verse 4. Wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding, but in the heart of fools it is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. As I have taught you throughout the entirety of these Proverbs, at least up to this point, Solomon is teaching his sons about godly wisdom. And in this case, godly wisdom in a very foolish world of living and talking. And that, I think, is what is here in chapter 14, verse 33, through chapter 15, verse 4. It's talking about foolish living and foolish talking. And, of course, contrastatively, it's talking about wise living and wise talking. Now just like Charles Haddon Spurgeon's quote that I read earlier about knowing how to use wisdom, so Solomon says here in verse 33 that if a person has a true biblical understanding of the world, godly wisdom comes to reside or rest in his heart. Isn't that what verse 33 says? Wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding. But in the heart of hearts of fools, it is made known. I want to camp out a little bit on that particular 33a that speaks about 
this wisdom resting in the heart. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? If you are a wise person, or it could be translated a discerning person, God's wisdom, Solomon says, will come to rest or reside within you. It means that wisdom will come to have a settled place in your heart and in your life. I love that imagery. The settling down of wisdom in your life. That is, you'll begin to live skillfully in the world because you'll have wisdom residing or resting at your every opportunity to learn and grow, to speak and to live. Notice how this is contrasted with the hearts of fools. It says, but in the hearts, or could be translated in the inward parts, or maybe even a better translation, in the midst of fools, it is made known. I like that translation in the midst of a little bit better because it's not talking about wisdom residing in the hearts of fools. It's contrasting that very thing. The wisdom residing in the heart of one who has understanding. This means that there is wisdom and it's around, it's in the midst of fools, but they never take advantage of it. That's the sense of this contrast. He means that whereas wisdom resides or rests or has a settled place in the heart of one who has understanding, wisdom is only in the midst of fools. It's around. It's around them. But it never finds its settled place in their hearts. That's the contrast. Do you remember, by the way, when in Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, that wisdom calls out to fools. This may be a good cross-reference. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. This may be an explanation, as it were, of wisdom in the midst of fools, but never residing or settling in their hearts, truly and completely. Proverbs 1, verse 20. Remember this? Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. And this is what she cries out. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. This is exactly what Solomon is talking about here in our text, Proverbs 14.33. It's, it's a wisdom that is calling out. It's a wisdom that's in the midst of the city gates. It's something that should be intimately acquainted with the heart of a person who has understanding. But because they're foolish, it's around them, but it's not in them. It doesn't reside. It hasn't settled in their lives. Notice wisdom says in verse 23, Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. In other words, I will allow my wisdom, Lady Wisdom says, to reside in your hearts, to settle down in you. Notice the turn, verse 24. Because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. This is the naive one, the scoffer, the fool. You neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. And notice Lady Wisdom's response, verse 26, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. 
They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose, there's our phrase again, the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof, so they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. You see, it's just like Proverbs 14:33. The wisdom is around them, but it hasn't had a settled place in their heart, and because of their complacency, it destroys them. But he who listens to me shall live securely, Proverbs 1:33, and will be at ease from the dread of evil. See, wisdom, my friends, needs to be more than just around you. Not something that is just available to you. It needs to have a settled place in your hearts. You need to love it. You need to live with it. You need to nourish the wisdom that comes your way. And when you have numbers of believers like this, Numbers of believers who have this kind of wisdom residing in their hearts. Numbers of believers who love Jesus Christ and their righteousness begins to pervade a society. Notice how it even affects a nation. Proverbs 14.34 Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. You see, when wisdom resides in the heart of an individual... And then it resides in the hearts of many individuals who are precious believers in Jesus. There's a collective righteousness. And when there is, it exalts or lifts up potentially an entire nation. I mean, just think of it. Just think of what our own little world, our own little slice of things in the United States of America would be if we were to heed this wisdom saying, Uh, We would not be known as we are so predominantly today as a nation of great political strength or monetary value or military greatness, but our greatness is in our collective wisdom and through the righteousness of Jesus Christ living under His Lordship. Would that not be a turnaround in this very nation? That's what exalts a nation Solomon says, and of course, we're not like a theocratic kingdom like he was under, like he was leading, but the point is still true that if individual believers were to have this righteousness about them, would not this collective righteousness exalt a nation? It sure would. You imagine the impact of a whole community of those who are committed to Jesus Christ, moving forward, saying no to evil, saying yes to righteousness, loving God, saying no to sin, doing the things that are exalting the Lord Jesus. Instead, of course, like so many who have come before us, and if the Lord wills, will come after us, when we trust in our political strength as a nation, our financial power, our military might, and we don't pursue the righteousness of God Himself, we're going to be no different than any other nation whose sin is a disgrace to its people. You know, I hear a lot of people talking about the United States and the things that we're known for in the world. And certainly it is true that politically and financially 
and militarily we are the world's only present superpower. That's true, but that's not where our strength lies, to be sure. Indeed, that could be so fleeting. That's why Psalm 75 says he exalts one, does God, and puts down another. It could be so easy for us to lose all of that political and financial and military strength, and it could happen in a moment's notice. And if we were to be those kinds of people who weren't trusting in that, but trusting in the righteousness of God, trusting in the purposes of God, trusting in the strength of God, we don't put our strength, as the Old Testament characterizes it, in horses. We don't put our strength in our military prowess. You remember even God Himself told this theocratic kingdom, Israel, in Deuteronomy 28, here are the blessings for obedience and here are the curses for disobedience. And it was so clear. You do this and you'll be blessed. You do this and you'll be cursed. The same is true for us, at least in terms of our individual relationships with Christ and then our collective relationship to Christ. By the way, regarding the individual and his own pursuit of righteousness, exalting those around them, if not a nation. Charles Bridges writes, What an enemy is an ungodly man to his country. Think about that. What an enemy is an ungodly man in his country, to his country. Loudly as he may talk of his patriotism, and even though God should make him an instrument of advancing her temporal interests, yet he contributes so far as in him lies to her deepest reproach. Why? Because he's not godly. He's not godly. No matter how he might advance her temporal interests, no matter how much someone could be involved in our country to uh, up its level of political power, its financial strength in the marketplace of the world, or its military prowess, no matter how much someone as a man could do something like that to serve, quote-unquote, my God and my country, unless he's doing it for righteousness' sake, it's not going to exalt that nation. In fact, it'll bring it its greatest reproach. Why? Because you're doing it in your own strength. You're doing it not for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ, but your own. Would not our government work toward protecting us And allowing us to live peaceably in our land if we were more collectively righteous and that because we were individually pursuing the righteousness of Christ? I dare say so. Verse 35 may give even an additional word on this. This is why I think so many of these Proverbs really go together and has more continuity than we give it credit for. Verse 35, the king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. Now clearly there's a connection between those two Proverbs. Righteousness exalting a nation and a response of the people and the king and his favor. Now whether this is referring to the king's own servant or whether it's talking about in the proverbial sense all of those who are servants, whether they're directly serving the king or not, it really doesn't change. It tells us this, wise living in a foolish world tends to bring governmental favor. That's, that's this proverb. Wise living in a foolish world tends to bring governmental favor. Shameful action tends to bring punitive consequences. 
That's why these Proverbs are so good. It's not talking about every single situation. It's just talking proverbially. It's talking that it is generally true that the king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. We know that even in terms of our New Testament. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a cause for fear of good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. You see, that's Solomon's language for act wisely. Do what is good. Act wisely. And you will have praise from the same. That's that's the very language of this text. The king's favor. You'll have praise from the same. For it... Paul says in Romans 13, government, Solomon's term is the king, for it, the government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, and that's Solomon's contrast here in verse 35, him who acts shamefully, if you do what is evil, Paul says, be afraid. For it, the government, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And verse 35 would be just like that in our Old Testaments. His anger, the king's anger, is toward him who acts shamefully. He's going to deal with those underneath him, either directly or indirectly, who act shamefully. That's just a guilt-edge guarantee that by and large, in the grand sweep of our world, both ancient and modern, God, through the government, through the king, through the agencies of man, will deal with those who act shamefully, and his favor will be with those who act wisely. That's generally true. It's not always true 100% of the time for whatever God's purposes are at a particular time and for His sovereign purposes. It may not be that way. You may be doing the right thing like Joseph and you may suffer for it. But generally speaking, you can be a, a wise acting person and the king's favor is toward you as his servant. But if you act shamefully, the king has anger toward you. Favor is what the wise servant receives. And by the way, that word anger in verse 35, but his anger could be translated flaming fury. Flaming fury for those who act shamefully. Proverbs 14 speaks so powerfully to us about our need for godly wisdom in our attempt to live in this world. That's what Solomon tells us in these three verses. It's wise living, wise living in a foolish world. And now I want you to notice in chapter 15, he moves right into verse 1 and talks about wise talking in a foolish world. Wise talking in a foolish world. Proverbs 15:1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And you can see... This is coming right out of the previous section, and it's talking now, zeroing in right on the issue of the action of a person, either wise or foolish, specifically regarding his tongue. Now, we don't know if this is an immediate rebuke from the king, 
According to chapter 14, verse 35, we don't know if this is a, an actual extension, and we're talking here about the king's wrath and how you ought to give a gentle answer toward it, but it could be, coming right out of that verse, it could be in the context talking about how you are supposed to answer this avenging king. His, his anger is burning against you because you're acting shamefully, and maybe it could be that Solomon says a gentle answer would turn away his wrath. Or, spreading it out, widening it out, contextually, maybe it's just, of course, giving us the general principle to anyone who is angry with you. A gentle answer turns away their wrath. What we do know is this, regardless of whether this is talking about the king's response and authority over you or a subject in the kingdom at any time, all of us need to heed this powerful proverb. And how many of us have quoted this to our children? How many of this, how many of, uh, of us have had this quoted in our own hearts when we have been dealing with our children? This is so timely. It's applicable to everyone. When you're experiencing wrath from someone else, regardless of the situation, regardless of whom it might be, a gentle answer tends to turn their wrath away. I remember when I was working as campus security for Biola University, and when I would come across someone who was either not supposed to be there, the campus I believe was something like 95 acres in its circumference, it was a very, very large property, and I was either on foot or I was in the, the vehicle, and I can remember people would come uh, through. There, it was uh, This 95 acres uh, was in between two major thoroughfares there in La Mirada, California, and we would get a lot of traffic from people either on foot or in their cars who weren't supposed to be there, and sometimes they were up to no good. And I know that there were times where people were either like that or maybe they were there and they were just lost and didn't know if there was a way from one thoroughfare to the other, and so they would come through believing that there was a, a way to cut through, and we would talk with them. They wouldn't have the, the proper identification on their vehicles to show us that they were a student, and sometimes you would, would find them in the back portions, uh, sometimes in the dark, sometimes they were up to no good, and you would talk to them, and sometimes you would talk to some of these people, and they would be very, very angry, very, very angry, especially if you were confronting them in any way. And I remember very clearly that there were times where I would confront someone in a very calm manner and they would just become agitated. It was almost as though you didn't assume they were doing anything, but they assumed that you assumed they were up to something. And so they would become quite agitated, sometimes quite belligerent, quite angry. And I remember thinking about this proverb several times as some of those confrontations happened. And the more they became agitated and the more they became angry, the softer I could become, and it would just turn that wrath away. The louder they became, the softer I became. And it would tend to diffuse the situation. That's a lot like what Solomon is talking about here. You're only going to escalate matters in a conflict if you return wrath with your own anger or wrath. By the way, the word translated harsh here in the New American Standard Bible could also be translated painful. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a painful word 
stirs up anger. Stirs up. This is so straightforward, so very simple in that sense, yet so difficult to obey. Maybe more than anything else, this is a proverb on self-control, isn't it? It's a proverb on self-control. How do you respond in tense situations? How do you respond with angry people? What is your modus operandi? How do you respond to it? Proverbs 25, 28 says this, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. You see, if you don't have self-control and somebody comes to you and there is an angry kind of issue going on, if you are harsh to them in return, if you don't have control of your spirit, it stirs up more anger, more wrath. Boy, doesn't the Proverbs speak to this so many times? Look back at chapter 14, verse 17. The first part of it. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Look at verse 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Look at chapter 15. In this same chapter we're studying. We go from verse 1 to verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. But the slow to anger calms a dispute. Chapter 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Isn't that good? Chapter 19, the first part of verse 11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. So you have discretion in a situation. You see that it's going to potentially cause a disruption, cause a conflict, cause more anger to be stirred up, and your discretion makes you slow to anger. The Lord can work much in that situation. Verse 19 of chapter 19, a man of great anger will bear the penalty For if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Isn't that so true that you're involved with a person who is just perpetually angry and you're going to have to deliver him time after time after time from the disputes that he gets himself involved with because he cannot control himself. Chapter 22, verse 24. And this is so applicable for us. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot tempered man. Why? Verse 25, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. That is so true. Chapter 29, verse 22, an angry man stirs up strife and a hot tempered man abounds in transgression. You know, it reminds me of that proverb, with many words, there is transgression. Well, especially with many angry words, a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Chapter 30, verse 
33. For the churning of milk produces butter. That's what churning does. And pressing the nose brings forth blood. You do that to your nose and eventually blood will result. So the churning, so the churning or pressing of anger produces strife. You press the nose of a situation. You keep churning up things. And anger will be the result. And even Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, says in chapter 10, verse 4, If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position. And I love this, because composure allays great offenses. Composure allays great offenses. Have your composure about you. Don't respond to those who attack you. I've been in situations in which somebody is attacking me and speaking about me and giving false accusations. And with everything in you, you want to be able to respond either to the accusations themselves and to scream out, that's not true. But you know in your heart that in this angry dispute, in this volatile situation, that if you speak in such a way that you don't control yourself, there will be a churning up, a stirring up of a volatile situation gone more bad. You don't, you don't want to do that. Are you seeking to turn away anger or are you stirring it up? That's Proverbs 15.1. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 gives us yet another perspective on our wise speech in a foolish world. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. Do you see how these are connected with one another? In fact, the first four verses in that sense are all talking about wise speaking in a foolish world. Verse 2 here, the NIV has verse 2 reading this way, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. It just sort of gushes out this folly of a man who is a fool. He's spouting all kinds of untruth and non-wisdom ideas. Here's another translation of verse 2. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge. I like that. Adorns knowledge. You put it around your neck. It's the Hebrew word tetiv, maybe signaling the sense of attractiveness. It takes on the character of its object, and with the object here being knowledge, it takes on the sense of being ready or adorning yourself or beautifying yourself with knowledge. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The knowledge Excuse me, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge beautiful, commendable, acceptable. You want to adorn yourself with this. It makes knowledge pleasant. You speak in such a way that your wise tongue makes what you have to say commendable or even beautiful. And yet, on the other hand, Solomon says to his sons, and I say to you, the mouth of fools merely spouts folly. Or the NIV speaks in a more graphic sense. The fool's mouth gushes his folly. 
You know, just like Lady Wisdom gushes out with the spirit of wisdom, even as we read it, Proverbs one twenty or Proverbs one twenty three, I will pour out my wisdom upon you, gushing out my wisdom upon you. It's available to you. Do you want it? You can have it. But the fool says no. I will have none of it. And they do nothing but tear down, destroy. And so I ask, what kind of tongue characterizes us? And don't forget, the Lord knows everything we're thinking, even sometimes when we don't say it. The Lord knows what we're thinking. Now, we shouldn't say it. And even though the Lord knows what we're thinking, we need to suspend the brain at times before the mouth engages. But notice verse 3. Here's how the Lord knows. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. The Lord knows what's going on. He sees what's happening in every place. We saw that same idea in Proverbs 5.21, where it was speaking of the knowledge of what the, the Lord sees, even in terms of someone who's involved in adultery. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. And I think, again, if this unit is to be taken together, which I think it does, linguistically and contextually, I think it's linked to the Lord's eyes watching over our words. This is what the Lord does. He watches our words. Nothing escapes the purview of the Almighty. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 66. And this is an ever-present theme in the Old Testament. Psalm 66 verse 7 says this. Psalm 66 7 He rules by His might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. The Lord's always watching. I remember thinking as a new Christian, not having grown up in a Christian home, and I'm sure if I was a very, very young believer, even as a very young person, I would have had the same sense of things. But I was mesmerized, I was fascinated by the omniscience of the Lord. That the Lord knows everything and that the Lord is omnipresent, that He is everywhere, and that He sees everything, that He sees everything that I'm doing, that He knows what I'm about. There's nothing that escapes His notice. Did you know that that could be a tremendously liberating thought, that if you were to say at any one point with any of your actions, the Lord's here, the Lord knows what I'm doing, the Lord knows what I'm thinking, The Lord sees how I'm interacting with people. The Lord is cataloging my words. His omniscience, His omnipresence. He knows all of the places that I go. He knows all of the things that I do. How could I assume that if I go somewhere that I shouldn't go, if I say something I shouldn't say, if I am the kind of person I don't need to be, that I could fool humanity, but not the Lord? Because I can fool most of the people most of the time. But the Lord knows all of these things. His eyes are everywhere. Psalm 11 verse 4, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test 
the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. The Lord knows everything we're doing. He looks on the evil and the good. Even in our own chapter, Proverbs 15, 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. Our hearts are just open before the Lord. He knows everything. I mean, if you really thought about it, if you were to go places you shouldn't go, say things you shouldn't say, do things you shouldn't do, the Lord knows everything. And if you know you shouldn't do it, and if you know that His eyes are watching you, why would you go ahead and do it? That is a, that is a safeguard. That's not a problem. That is not a problem in the Christian life. That is a safeguard. If you were to arm yourself with that one piece of wise knowledge in a foolish world, you could say to yourself, I don't need to go there. I don't need to do that. And especially Proverbs 15 verses 1 to 4, I don't need to say that. Because the Lord knows. He sees it all. I don't need to be involved in that action because He knows what I'm doing. I can't fool Him. I could fool a lot of people, but I can't fool Him. He knows what I'm doing. He's watching over the evil person and the good person, the sinner and the saint, the unbeliever and the believer. He knows it. He sees it all. Charles Bridges writes this, But how shall I meet these eyes? As a rebel or as a child? Do they, these eyes, inspire me with terror or with love? Do I walk carefully under their lively impressions? Conscious corruption leads me to shrink from the eyes of man. But oh my God, I would lay myself naked and open to thee. Search me and try me and show me to myself. Bring out my hidden iniquities and slay them before thee. How is the overwhelming thought of this piercing eye more than counterbalanced by the view of the great high priest who covers and cleanses all infirmities and defilements and pleads and maintains my acceptance notwithstanding all discouragement. You know what he's saying? I can actually use the eyes of the Lord to my advantage. I can use them to my advantage. I've said to my kids for years and years and years, being in the position that I'm in as the pastor of the church, any pastor for that matter, you're always being watched. Children, you're always being watched. And yes, the standard is so high that none of us, myself included, could actually ever hope to attain to all of it. But you know what? Use that to your advantage. Use that to your advantage. Strive for the standard. Live up to the standard as much as you can by the Holy Spirit's prompting and will and way. Do all that you can knowing that the eyes of the Lord are upon you. Knowing that God knows and sees all that you're doing. Use that, children, to your advantage. Don't kick against it. Don't say this is unfair. Don't say I can't measure up to this standard. Don't say those things. Say instead, Lord... You have me where you have me in your sovereign will. You have me living in this home. You have me having the preacher as the dad. Use that to your advantage. And I say the same thing. As the preacher, I'll use this to my advantage. Wherever I go in Little Rock, 
wherever I travel, whether I'm in a hotel room, no matter what I'm doing, the Lord knows, the Lord sees, His eyes are on the evil and the good. He's seeing everything that the good person does. And he sees what the good person is all about in the secret places when no one else is looking. You see, you live to that kind of standard. The Lord will be pleased to bless you. He'll be pleased to bless you. He'll watch on the good that you do and he'll honor the good. He'll watch the righteousness that is a part of your life and He'll honor the righteousness. He'll give you favor. He'll protect you. He'll even protect you from things that you weren't involved with, that you wouldn't want to be involved with, that you didn't even know existed because the Lord protected you from it. That's how much He loves us. And finally, verse 4, a soothing tongue is a tree of life. But perversion in it crushes the spirit. Or, as that alternate translation has it in your NASB Bible, a healing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it is the crushing of the spirit. This is so good. If you speak with a soothing, healing tongue, Solomon says, it brings productive life to you, And it will bring productive life to those you're speaking to. The proverb says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. You can speak in such a way that you can slice and dice someone and hurt them deeply and in some cases irrevocably. The tongue has that power. And it's amazing. They're just words. It's all they are. Just sentences strewn together. And yet life and death are in the power of the tongue. Your your words can be soothing, Solomon says. They can be like a tree of life. It has that imagery of your words being so soothing that your words are like a tree for which fruit is dropping Luscious, precious, nourishing fruit that comes from the tree that are your words. That's how crucial wise talking is in a foolish world. If you use healing words, you'll bring the good fruit from the tree of life to those who desperately need it. And of course, the opposite is true. Perversion in your tongue crushes the spirit. This word crushes is used a couple of other places in the Hebrew text. In Psalm 60, it's used this word crush of an earthquake. That's the magnitude of it. And it's used in Isaiah 30 verse 14 of a potter's vessel being broken by shattering it. That's what the perversity in your words could do to people. Shatter them. Crush them. Destruction. Devastation. Even some translations have it this way. Perversion in your tongue fractures the spirit. It can just destroy a person. Fracture them. Crushing them. 
That's why Ephesians 4 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your, your mouth, but only such a one as is good for edification. Boy, what a, what a challenge this is. And what a set of contrasts these are. For the believer, here's how they're characterized. Gentle speech, beautiful knowledge, the eyes of the Lord on their good, with a soothing tongue, with wisdom resting in their heart, righteousness exalting them, and a servant who is acting wisely. That's what characterizes a believer. That's what it means to act wisely in a foolish world. But the contrast is also true. The unbeliever, harsh words. He has the mouth of a fool. The eyes of the Lord is on his evil. He has a perverse tongue. He has the heart of a fool. He is a a sinner who disgraces himself and the nation, and he's acting shamefully. This is so clear, so black and white, that this truly does call upon ourselves to evaluate which side we're on. Let's pray and ask the Lord to allow us to know which of these really characterize us. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, Your Proverbs are so clear. They're Your wisdom. So clear. You tell us how we should live in this foolish world. You tell us how we should act and You tell us how we should speak. And it's so easy for us to lose sight of these very clear principles. And yet they are given to us time and time and time again in this great book of wisdom so that we again and again could be reminded of that which we do and say. Oh Lord, keep reminding us. Keep reminding me. Thank You for these Proverbs. Thank You for all of them as they have come to us. All of them saying at times the very same thing in subtle and different ways, but all telling us the same truth. Here's what it means to be a believer. Here's what it means to be an unbeliever. Here's what it means to be a wise actor and a wise speaker in a foolish world. Oh Lord, continue to give us this kind of wisdom. Continue to remind us through these great Proverbs as we study them together. As we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.